friend of the podcast, Marlon Brando. Before he developed a critical case of crazy fat old man syndrome, and around the time he accidentally set the standard for fetish wear in the leather community, played the bad boy leader of a motorcycle gang in a film called The Wild One. Many of you probably know it. In one scene, his character, Johnny, is asked what exactly he's rebelling against, to which Brando replies simply, What do you got? How cool is that? When you think about what defining traits make up the American character, depending on how patriotic you might be feeling on any given day, you might think of phrases like independence, self-reliance, rugged individualism, revolutionary spirit, which are all high-minded ways of saying we have a real problem with authority. Most of us don't like to think of it in those terms, especially because man oh man does it burn our toast when we see somebody else doing something they aren't supposed to do. But when you look at our idols, in history and in pop culture, we inevitably gravitate towards the rule breakers. Gangsters, rock stars, pirates, the founding fathers. Nobody ever made history just showing up to work and doing exactly what they were told. And somewhere deep down in the American character, we all kind of want to make history. For the most part, though, we don't have many epic struggles. Most of our lives are pretty mundane, full of inconvenience, frustration, and a host of other trivial tyrannies that don't even seem worth the effort of rebelling against. Today's film is the rare war story that deals with some of these same everyday obstacles. It's about a seemingly unimportant cargo ship and its beleaguered crew toiling away endlessly in the safe area of the Pacific during the waning days of World War II. I use the term toiling loosely. They spend a decent portion of their time getting drunk on grain alcohol from the medical bay, faking illnesses to get out of various duties they'd rather avoid, lecherously spying on bathing nurses, and plotting petty vengeance against their captain and his prize palm tree. These are not actions that we would likely admire in our real-life peers and acquaintances, and we don't like thinking about our grandfathers being horny peeping toms who rip women's clothing off for kicks on a Saturday night, but in the context of this film, their misbehavior seems almost noble in a lot of cases. Maybe it's the performance of this legendary cast that elevates their shenanigans and gets us on their side. Perhaps it's the fact that so many of us can understand the resentment felt towards a small mind in a position of power that we see ourselves in this crew, whether we want to or not. Or maybe it's our ingrained distrust of authority, our inner leather daddy Brando, that has us rooting for someone to fill the captain's overhead compartment with marbles, because we don't need big tyrannies to rebel against. We'll take whatever you got. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So get out your fancy pillows, light up your firecrackers, and get kicked out of port with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we add exclamation points and underline our favorite passages of John Ford's Academy Award-winning 1955 uncomfortably oversexed wartime service comedy, Mr. Roberts. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome. 
Welcome back to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And we are coming at you today with a 1955 John Ford naval film called Mr. Roberts. I want to thank all you guys for your patience. We pushed our schedule back one week so that we could get Apocalypse Now out to you guys because that was a pretty beefy edit. So that was the last episode. So yeah, we try not to do that too much, but thank you guys for waiting. And we are back on track now. And as usual, we'll start off with Katie's mission briefing. Mr. Roberts started out as a novel by Thomas Higgins, who based much of it on his own wartime experiences. With the script writing help of Joshua Logan and the production power of Leland Hayward, the novel became a hit Broadway play. From the beginning, Henry Fonda played Mr. Roberts in a Tony Award-winning role that he went on to perform for several years. John Ford demanded that Fonda star in the film version, even though the role had already been given to Marlon Brando. Ford was a cantankerous old man by this point, and there was much conflict on set between the director and his principal actors. Fonda had some very specific ideas about how his character should be played, and Ford disagreed. Halfway through the filming, Ford went on a epic bender and subsequently fell ill with gallbladder issues. Mervyn Leroy was brought in to finish the film with the help of Joshua Logan. Mr. Roberts went on to win Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars for Jack Lemmon and was nominated for Best Picture and Best Sound Recording. It made a boatload at the box office and was met with resoundingly positive criticism. World War II-themed comedies were not exactly a rarity during this time, but this one occupies a strange place in that it takes on both darker and way hornier tones than many of the similar films that were being made around then. What are your perspectives on the comedy in this film? Liam? Oh, am I going first? Oh, yeah. So this does come from a very specific time period when service comedies were a genre all their own. Like we would think of romantic comedies. This time they would be screwball comedies. Well, I guess when you get into like the 80s and 90s, you get into the rom-com era. Prior to that, they were pretty much just comedies or screwball comedies or, you know, women's pictures. But service comedies were about as ubiquitous as a subgenre can be. You have things like Operation Petticoat, Father Goose, often starring Cary Grant, although he's not in this one. This... Such a strangely horny movie. Oh my god! For 1955, right? And it's it's the B plot, maybe C plot. I mean, it's like 25 percent of the movie is dudes trying to get laid, pretty much. Yes, yes. Which is not it's not unheard of. But 1955 was a weird year for that because 1955 was also the year that Marty won Best Picture. Have you guys seen Marty with Ernest Borgnine? No. No. So it was weird for Marty to win because it was a very small film about a awkward, lonely man. It was like the original like man child romantic comedy, but also a drama. But it was about this guy who still lived with his mother and he's very awkward and he wanted to find the right girl. It was strange for a movie like that to to get that kind of traction in in this period. People weren't really making movies like that and it wasn't a big budget thing. 
I'd always heard about it, but I, I went back and watched it a couple of years ago, and it was weird to me that not only was that movie entirely about getting laid, <laughs> sort of for Marty too, but it's really just about trying to find like the girl that he wants to be with, but everybody else in that movie, all the other guys are trying to get laid, and they're trying to get laid in the sleaziest fashion possible. Like, it's Ernest Borgnine and a bunch of sleaze bags. <laughs> Is what that movie is. Oh, okay. So seeing that and knowing that it was made the same year as this, man, maybe there was just something that that got put in the water in 1955, but like... Horny Central. uh, Horny Central, but also like kind of creepy, not okay anymore, Horny Central. Yeah. This is the beginning of of a trend, I think, that lasted up through the 80s with movies like Porky's and into the 90s with movies like Animal House. Yeah. My husband was watching this with me and that's exactly what he said. He was like, this is worse than Animal House almost. Yeah. And, you know, you get some like even up through like the American Pie era. This is there's some raunchy shit in this movie. And but it is mostly off screen. It is off screen, but just like their reactions to things right. are what is so cringy now. For sure. It is a very, very cringy B-plot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dan? Yeah, I had my moments for sure where I just laughed out loud, and I'll I'll bring them up as they come up, but the uh, (laughs) trying to turn grain alcohol into scotch just by adding medicine and other like hair products to it was was a good one hair tonic oh yeah. that's hilarious and coca-cola right i think towards the end when they when uh jack lemon's character blows up the laundry room that was a pretty funny scene mm-hmm. but yeah all the scenes with them going after women i think played a lot funnier at the time Whereas to a modern audience now, or at least to me, they played a little awkward, which interestingly, I rewatched 48 Hours with Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte last night before I watched this. And that is also a movie about two dudes mostly trying to catch these criminals. But the B plot is definitely them trying to get laid and talking about trim and pussy like explicitly. And I was just like, <sighs> all right, wow, they are uh, very unsubtle about this. And, um, yeah, I, I think this would have been a lot creepier had there been, for example, the whole binoculars scene. They never once show you the view through the binoculars of anything, not the island, not the hospital, not the nurse taking a shower. Right. So, like, they could have made it worse by actually showing semi-nude women only because nude women wouldn't have been allowed in 55. Right, right. And they didn't. So, it's kind of like you can laugh at it and cringe a little less because you're like, well, they're not actually showing any of it. And, again, when it goes to service men in World War II, part of me is also like, okay, you can choose however you want to depict this, but... Men who are alone on a ship for two years are hornballs no matter what area you pick out. So you can choose to display it or not, but it's not necessarily inaccurate, especially at a time when peeping at women was just not considered uh, criminal behavior. It wasn't what it is today. Right. It wasn't what it is today. Yeah, this is a fascinating and we, we've talked about this in other episodes, but this is a fascinating artifact. Can you imagine trying to trying to depict everybody's grandfathers like this today? Like if this were the B plot of Saving Private Ryan, nobody would have gone for it. 
Yeah, this generation might not talk a lot about their combat experience, but I'll bet you they also don't talk that much about, you know, getting trim or whatever they were doing when they were on Liberty <laughs> Calls and boards in the Pacific. They probably keep right. that to themselves. Right. The other one that cracked me up was uh, when Pulver busts out the, like, pillows. The silk pillows with the fringe. One of them says, we plow deep while others sleep. I was just like, wow, this made it past the censors in 55? That's pretty crazy. From what I have read, the play is far more vulgar than this and they very they very much had to downplay the horniness level of this, which I find hilarious. Yes, because Broadway was always more risque than, than Hollywood at the time. I mean, it's... It's still pretty fucking risque. So, yeah, to answer the question, it was definitely a mix of me like straight up laughing out loud for real at some of the jokes and some of the situations to sort of examining it from a more modern perspective, being like, is this supposed to be funny or is it supposed to be awkward? And then there's a few cringe moments where I'm like, oh, I don't know. I have no idea if this was supposed to be funny at the time, but it's just kind of embarrassing now. So, yeah. Yeah. The uh, I think the ADR whistling. Oh, like the ADR dog whistling is probably more cringy than anything that's actually happening in the movie. Yeah, there's a lot of cat calling for sure. Well, and the cringier part is also that most of the scenes with catcalling are being done towards other service members, which we don't see a lot of women service members from this era in film. No. But, you know, like one of those nurses is an officer. And granted, mm-hmm. Betsy Palmer's character, Lieutenant Gerard, stands up for herself and takes no shits. And so I, I liked that. I was like, oh, cool. He's like trying to swoop in on her and trying to hit on all the other nurses. And she's just not having it, which, again, for the era was a nice. <sighs> move. Yeah. I do love the, uh, the, I love how it ends up playing out. Yes. The fact that none of it goes the way Pulver is expecting. Right. Is the saving grace of this movie. And Betsy Palmer in particularly as the lieutenant. He's like, come alone. And she shows up with like a team of nurses. Yeah. With, with six other women, which is like, ah, that's very smart. But then also he refers to her as that dumb little blonde. And I'm oh, like, man, were we yeah. talking to the same woman? Like this? Right. She was way smarter than you, first of all. And like, yeah, exactly. Two packs a day and a bottle of scotch, hard as nails kind of lieutenant. I was waiting for the spit take where he actually got her in the room. And the reason it was going to go poorly is because she takes a drink of the fake scotch and just spits it out in his face. Because I'm like, that girl knows what scotch tastes like. And that ain't it. Yep, exactly. I do love the scotch scene, though. Katie, what did you think of the comedy of this movie? I was uh, honestly, I was wondering the entire time I was watching this. I was like, oh, yeah, Katie's probably going to have some words. I definitely do. And we'll get into it. But I think that my answer to my own question is that this to me has all the hallmarks of a black comedy of something like a serious man, for example. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is nowhere near as Jewish as that. (laughs) (laughs) No, John Ford. No. No, none of that, which unfortunately, honestly, unfortunately, but it really taps into this strange vein of both realism and absurdity and like how crazy the guys go when they're finally let on, as it's referred to in the film, Liberty. And they go and they just like lose their minds. And there can't be more than like maybe 30 dudes that we see and they're just causing rank havoc. Yeah. It's a worse result than the 
opening party of Das Boat, which we'll talk about in an episode soon. And I was like, I didn't think anybody was going to top that military party, but these guys clearly did, even though it happens off screen. It was, well, the official count that they give in the film is 62 men on board. Mm-hmm. And two of them, plus the captain, stay behind to watch the boat while the rest go out. So I, I guess on a small island, 60 men can probably do a lot of damage. But the way Roberts just kind of embraces it and tries to deal with these over-the-top ridiculous requirements from his captain and all of that just feels so much like something I would watch in the 90s or early 2000s that would be labeled black comedy today. And I think it's great at doing that. And it's not something we see a lot from this era. And I would be more than willing to bet that the personnel who are being portrayed in this movie would appreciate the embrace of absurdity that this film really latches on to by the end. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a way I kind of felt like it was a reversal of the Kane mutiny. Mm -hmm. Like the Kane mutiny felt 80% serious and 20% comedy. And this was the other way around, but I definitely saw the parallels because that was 57. I want to say 1954. It was Ooh, a year before thank this. You, Katie. Okay, so it was before this one, and Bogart clearly just gives it a whole other feel. But there are some parallels there with the captain being neurotic and making some insane demands, even though this captain doesn't feel insane. He just feels misguided. He feels like an asshole. Also an asshole, yeah. Well, and also this is, so Joseph Heller started writing Catch-22 in 1953 okay it wasn't published until i think 61 maybe but you want to talk about a a a military story that fully embraces the absurdity and the horniness and all of like the weird shit and incongruities and the contradictions of serving in world war ii i think the 50s is when you started to get this kind of postmodern sort of reflection and self-awareness in popular media that's this is when that really started to manifest itself all right well at this at this point we are almost 10 years past the war when this releases and there's a lot more room for wider reflection than we had seen two years or even five years out from the war because that distance allows us to speak more honestly about what these guys went through rather than resort to patriotic niceties i also think it was interesting that i couldn't say that they really took advantage of the medium switch from theater to film but i don't know that it was necessary pretty much with a few exceptions of the shots during the credits a few wide shots of the other boats coming up to them and getting resupplied and of the plane landing towards the end It's like basically the deck of the ship is the stage and the entire 90% of the film is done like a play where you have a few, you know, you have the the bridge and the officer's quarters and kind of, you know, the cargo bay, etc. Yeah, it it very much feels like a play. You can almost see like the lights going off of the stage and now we're focusing the lights on. Yeah, quick switch of uh, a few doors and a few walls and now we're in a different room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you turn a thing around and you see now the interior of the of the the cabin. Exactly. And it's funny, I never thought that we were going to cover a naval movie where the ship 
never goes underway for even like a minute <laughs> in the yeah. film. They are just docked the entire time. No, no, they're not. They they go back and forth between because uh, they go to that new. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Well, you never see it travel. There are two incidents where you see it travel. And it is when the palm trees go overboard yes. <laughs> because there is a scene, uh, you know, they they've discovered that the war in Europe is has over. Germany surrendered. It is the only time that I remember, at least, where Roberts is sitting on on the deck and you can see splashes mm-hmm. coming up behind him. And I was like, we haven't we haven't seen that before. What's going on? And then he goes up and throws the palm tree overboard. And then you see it like recede in it in the wake of the yes. ship. Right. And then I think it happens again when the second time the poor palm tree goes overboard. But you're right, though, when they go to the island with the when the Polynesians come to greet them in the in the uh, canoes, they're definitely yep. moving there. So, OK, I, I take it back. There's a few times where the ship is underway, but it certainly was the ship was more active in the K-Mutiny that it wasn't this. This is, like, almost entirely stationary. Yeah. And it felt like the K-Mutiny, the, the ship had slightly more purpose than this one. This one, it feels like, okay, well, your job is to be the delivery boy. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially, we'll, we'll go through the synopsis a little bit here, but the historical context here is really about just the allied war effort in logistics and supply which was this gigantic operation which you can see in you know from the battle of the atlantic to something like this where you're dealing with a cargo ship but you know i've even read articles modern articles more recently that actually argued that people like Patton and famous generals eisenhower you know get all the credit for winning the war through superior strategy and just superior soldiering and i think there are historians out there that would argue that actually if you take most of those quote-unquote great men out of the equation in the end the u.s won because they had better supply logistics and were better organized and so as the japanese were running out of raw materials and oil And as the Germans were running out of parts, the Americans just had fresh supply coming in. They were better fed. They were better equipped. And that's a big part of how we won the war in both theaters. A vast majority of people who served performed logistical duties of one kind or another. Thousands of Liberty ships like the USS Reluctant. What a great freaking name. Right? (laughs) Isn't that fabulous? It's almost too apropos. Right. Delivered munitions, troops, food, and all other war material to the various theaters of the war. It should be noted that while not glamorous, the obsession with proper supply was one of the key advantages that the Allies had over the Axis. Dave Feldman did our research for this episode, by the way. Thank you, Dave, for jumping in with this. Dave. Dave. And Dave mentions one of his favorite pieces of equipment. Half of all Tiger tanks on the German front, for example, broke down and were abandoned due to a lack of spare parts. They literally just couldn't fix them when they broke down. In the Pacific theater, the Japanese had conquered a vast territorial area with the intent of forcing the Allies to fight a grueling war of attrition. Japanese soldiers and Marines were ultimately isolated throughout the South Pacific on island strongholds that could not be resupplied. For the Allies, the common ratio is that 10 men would be needed to keep one man fighting in the field. Whereas Allied soldiers, sailors, and Marines faced monotony, boredom, poor food, and little female company, Japanese soldiers were in a far more existential struggle. 
Starvation and disease followed the Japanese on every front, and even cannibalism was reported in New Guinea and Burma. So the bored, miserable guys on Liberty ships delivering toilet paper very much won the war. Yeah, and I think that kind of, it isn't as clear as I think it should be, but there is at least um, acknowledgement made to that fact by the end. I think this movie has a lot more in common thematically with It's a Wonderful Life than I think it gets credit for. Ooh, interesting. I'm on board with this. Where the hero, who is the guy that we all sort of want to be like, Mr. Roberts is... He's definitely the ideal man of this time frame, I agree. Yes. He wants to get in there and really fulfill what he sees as his purpose and do his part and live the life that he's meant to live, but he's stuck in a much smaller role that he doesn't appreciate as being as integral to success and life as he actually is. He's holding together this entire community and he doesn't even really appreciate that he's doing it. And I think that's a, that's a a very, it's a wonderful life kind of message that, you know, it's like, Oh no, just be, yes, I get it. Be happy in your work. Sorry, little callback. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but no, it's like, you know, you, not everybody gets to go off and be the hero, but you can be a hero in your own small little sphere of influence there. I think that was a, a fairly popular message in Hollywood at the time. Speaking of It's a Wonderful Life, did you guys recognize any of the lesser known actors in this from other films? Mm. Yes. i can never remember where i see him but every time i see dolan in another movie i'm like it's dolan i mean the the most well-known is obviously william powell which this was his last feature film and anytime i can see william powell in literally anything i am happy because he's almost always the best actor on the screen yeah he was great he's fabulous and he you could just listen to him talk for days oh yeah and the the scene where he is trying to figure out, like, okay, but what's actually going on mm-hmm. with Roberts? Where he's like, oh, what do you mean? You you sound like you feel the men are indebted to you. What happened? Like, I was like, oh, my God, it's the Thin Man. You know, it's, the, yeah. it's William Powell from the Thin Man. <laughs> Nick Charles is on the case. Exactly. There was these moments of just teasing out information. Like, oh, he's just always such a pleasure to see on screen. I also, I fucking love Ward Bond so much. Ward Bond, he's a, he's a John Ford regular. He's, he's part of his stock company, more so than anybody else who made it into this movie. He's great. He's been in way more John Ford movies than Henry Fonda was. Just so everyone knows who we're talking about, he plays Chief Dowdy. Yes. Yes, he plays Chief Dowdy. Uh, I forget that not everybody knows who Ward Bond is. Uh. I recognize his face, but not his name until I looked it up. Yeah, no. And Ward Bond uh, also apparently on days that John Ford was too drunk to direct, took on some of the directing duties uncredited. Yeah, this was a this was a very collaborative film in that way, because John Ford was not at his best, we'll say. Even at his best, he wasn't at his best as far as like behavior goes. Uh, No, we'll get into some John Ford stuff in a little bit. But (laughs) did you recognize Ward Bond from It's a Wonderful Life? Well, I 
recognize Ward Bond from not only It's a Wonderful Life, he plays Bert the Cop. Yeah, uh huh, uh huh. Wanna come along, Bert? We'll show you the town. No, thanks. I uh, gotta go home and see what the wife's doing. But he is also one of the best parts in another John Ford movie that I grew up watching, The Quiet Man. Okay. He plays the uh, the local parish priest. Oh, nice. He's a uh, Father Lonergan, and yep, he is yep. one of the funniest parts of that movie. He is fabulous. We're not talking about Ford Apache, but he has a great exchange with Henry Fonda in Ford Apache, because in, uh, in Ford Apache, Henry Fonda is the commanding officer, and... I think Ward Bond plays like a sergeant major. He has to. He can't be an officer. <laughs> and his his son is in love with Henry Fonda's daughter. Oh. So there's problems there. But like his son is also an officer and Henry Fonda's kind of grilling him where he's like, how did your son even get to be an officer? He was they're like, how did he get into West Point? And he says, by presidential appointment. And Henry Fonda says, that's funny. I was under the impression that presidential appointments were reserved for the sons of medal of honor winners and ward pun goes i was under that impression too sir and i was just <laughs> like oh shit oh it's so good i love it but Bam. we'll talk about that movie at some point if we continue this project on long enough it, it's bound to happen he has a kick-ass mustache too i feel like anything where he doesn't have a mustache the audience is getting ripped off a little bit <laughs> yes exactly. he also plays a uh, he has a, a very small uncredited role in Another, he was in a lot of Frank Capra movies too, but he was in, uh, it happened one night as a bus driver who gets into an argument with, uh, Clark Gable. He's, uh, he's detective Tom Polehouse in the Maltese Falcon opposite Humphrey Bogart. Ward Bond was iconic, a great utility infielder of acting. He really, uh, it's, it's weird to say it, but like he, he's a very iconic character actor that really pioneered the idea of character actor. It's a person who isn't a leading man, but they take on such iconic roles outside of being leading men. He's definitely one of them. I'm glad we're getting some Ward Bond love, guys. I mean, like, I don't oh, yeah. get to gush over Ward Bond enough in my daily life. <laughs> and I'm just really happy that we got this chance. Yeah, for me, it's only my second time seeing him because as Bert the Cop and It's a Wonderful Life is the only other time I think I've seen him. But he has, you know, a decent number of lines in this and definitely plays off a Navy chief with like a little bit of a belly, but with a you know, a good command of, of his sailors. And then lastly, uh, did you notice uh, the only like obviously Latin actor, I think, at least out of all the sailors, uh, Perry Lopez, did you recognize him from anything later? He's really young in this. No, no, I didn't. So he plays Rodriguez in this. But if you look him up, even his IMDb picture, he's wearing 1930s uh, suit because he played opposite Jack Nicholson in... Chinatown. Uh, he is the uh, he's the other cop that comes in oh and he's like God. giving him shit all the time. I was like, oh damn, oh that's great. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> also, it's hard to to make a John Ford movie without John Wayne in it. But here we are. Oh yeah. Oh my God. No. However, Patrick Wayne, his son, plays Bookser, the young kid. Oh really? And he's fucking terrible. I know, but he's adorable. He's adorable, but it's the most wooden fucking performance in the entire movie. It's like, well, man. that's because you got to be John Wayne's son and pretend that you don't know what sex is. He's just going for sarsaparillas. <laughs> so, John Ford. Oh. Liam, do you want to start it off? I don't know if I can start it off, but I can definitely finish it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I want to start this fight, but... John Ford is like... 
he was one of the quintessential Hollywood directors at this time. There's an excellent documentary called Five Came Back that talks about John Ford, William Wyler, John Houston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens, all of whom were not necessarily drafted, but encouraged to join the war effort. They went and filmed wartime material. It's insane. Well worth a watch. But John Ford is Certainly, I would say the most volatile. I think he was well known as being an incredibly volatile director, even from the beginning. One of my favorite descriptions of uh, him during this movie is that he was drinking even heavier than usual or something <laughs> like that. Or I was like, oh, damn. Yeah, so there are some great anecdotes that came out of this uh, this production he and Henry Fonda, who had worked together many, 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 many times before, and they were good friends, fought so much on this production that the producers had to sit them down and have a meeting where they hashed it out. And instead of that going well, Ford punched Henry Fonda in the jaw. Yeah, it didn't go well. So this was one of my favorite pieces of IMDb trivia. When John Ford met James Cagney at the airport, the director warned that they would, quote, tangle asses, which caught Cagney by surprise. The next day, Cagney was slightly late on set and Ford became incensed. Cagney cut short the imminent tirade, saying, when I started this picture, you said that we would tangle asses before this was over. I'm ready now. Are you? Ford backed down and walked away, and he and Cagney had no further conflicts on the set. Cagney later said, I would have kicked his brains out. He was so goddamn mean to everybody. He was truly a nasty old man. Fucking love Ugh, James Cagney. Man. I read that and I was like, James Cagney was a nice guy. <laughs> That's right. Well, not necessarily, but he was at least a man who had no patience for authoritarian bullshit. Yeah, he did not. He did not hang with bullies. That's for sure. And Ford, Ford was not, uh, famously not a nice man. Oh, God, yeah. He actively campaigned against Maureen O'Hara for an Oscar nomination for The Quiet Man because she wouldn't enter into a casting couch relationship. She wouldn't fuck him. She wouldn't fuck him, so he, he blocked her from getting nominated for an Oscar for The Quiet Man, which everybody thought she deserved. Because she did. She did. She was amazing in that movie. And she had worked with him before many times with John Wayne. Like, how are you going to do that shit to Maureen O'Hara? One of like classic Hollywood film goddesses. Yeah, absolutely. So often I'm like, oh, this is my first John Ford or this is my first Henry Fonda. And then I realize I've actually seen 12 Angry Men or something else. And so it's only like my second or third. I believe this is my first James Cagney, though. And so... His character aside, which we can talk about, I was I wanted to ask you guys, what in the hell is going on with his accent? Because I would describe James Cagney <laughs> as the captain in this as like an angry leprechaun from Boston who is also doing a mid-Atlantic accent. And I was just like, what in the hell is going on with his voice? Now, is that just the way he talks? In everything, or is that something he adopted for this character? Both. First of all, it's it's a Chicago accent. First okay, of all, okay. I'm sorry, Chicago. He was from Chicago, and he most often uh, during his heyday portrayed Chicago gangsters. Because during that time, 
Chicago was the land of gangsters, not New York. Right. Okay. Thank you. My my Italian ears a little bit off. I'm catching original <laughs> American accents. Chicago, not Boston. But yes, he's that is how he talked, and it's weird because in this one, I think oh God, this had to be the first James Cagney I'd watched since like 12, 15 years old. Watching, I believe it was Robin Hood that has both Frank Sinatra and James Cagney in it. What? Oh, Robin and the Seven Hoods. Yes, thank you. Thank you. It's it's like a gangster retelling of the Robin Hood story. And oh. I think that was probably the last time I watched a whole ass movie with James Gagney in it. And I was watching and was like, I can see the comparisons and the joke imitations, but it's so much more subtle. It's a couple of layers to this answer because his voice is very distinctive. Uh-huh. It's a lot like Humphrey Bogart in that you always know when you're hearing James Cagney's voice. Right. But his character dialect in this is not the same as it is in all of his other movies. He can't get away from his own voice, but the way he pronounces things like, you boy. Who's that officer? You boy. It's not as intense as like, you dirty rat. Yeah, if you, it's interesting to see, because again, you know, I talked about this with the Kane Mutiny, you know, a lot of times because of the voice and because they always play fairly strong-willed characters, you get this sense that, you know, oh, James Cagney always played the same part. He played gangsters and things like that, but it's wildly not true. He, if you watch, you know, Public Enemy, Angels with Dirty Faces, White Heat, you get a lot of that Cagney gangster but then you watch him in this and it's completely different. And you watch him specifically in Yankee Doodle Dandy, where he won Best Actor for playing George Cohen. Yeah, he's like singing and dancing. He's a fabulous tap dancer, <laughs> you know, just improvising tap dancing down an entire ass flight of stairs because he could do it and just did it. Yes. Straight up like Shirley Temple level skill with his feet. Yes. Yeah, and it's weird because for a 1955 film, you would expect more of the other actors to have a mid-Atlantic accent. And really, he's the only one, or at least his is the most pronounced. Like, certainly, all the sailors have a very 1940s, 50s kind of way of talking. It is all pseudo-Brooklyn Bronx. All the the side characters. Like, the the one, uh, I don't know who plays him, and I don't know the character's name, but he's that one with the baby face who always has his hat attached to the back of his head isn't that just the standard for like oh lower class sailor we're gonna do a poorer neighborhood in new york accent it's yes. kind of just what they were going for it feels like something if you watch marvel's captain america if you watch that film now it's like playing on these tropes that are being set by this film because the first movie is very trope heavy and they have dudes with that exact accent doing the thing and i was like it's painful for someone who's experienced with like the original source material but if you've never seen that like it very much like hits a bell in your mind of this is world war ii era speak private ryben from uh saint private ryan yeah the brooklyn guy yes yes hey doc i got a mother all right i mean you got a mother sarge has got a mother I mean, shit, I bet even the captain's got a mother. Well, maybe not the captain, but the rest of us got mothers. But just to just to stay with Cagney for a minute, I love his performance in this. How do we feel about him compared to Bogart in the Kane Mutiny? Because I think the, the reasoning is very different. 
Bogart, it's it's much more like fear and anxiety. And for this guy, it's much more small dog syndrome, avarice and ambition. I mean, this character is just infinitely more hateable. Oh, yeah. You kind of feel bad for Bogart's character. Right. You have some you have some empathy for Captain Quig, especially by the end of it. Right. But for this guy, it's just you go fuck yourself, sir. Yeah. Captain Quig has some PTSD and he's struggling through something. So his mistreatment of his sailors has that blanket of, well, it's like kind of his fault, but there's also something else going on here. And even his mistreatment isn't to the level that this is. Right. And also the just the reasoning behind it this captain is a dick for all the wrong reasons and in all the petty ways it's like don't touch my palm award because i got that because i'm gonna get promoted right and Uh, i got that because of all the hard work that you folks did that i am gonna take credit for the symbol of our cargo record is this palm tree it's bad leadership 101 right as the captain of a ship, you are responsible for everything. So you are going to get the credit and the blame for everything that happens on your ship. Right. But you're kind of, you know, the way you're supposed to do it is when your guys fuck up, you take the blame. When your guys do well, you give them the credit. Like yes. clearly you're going to get promoted. Clearly you're, you know, good things are going to happen. Like to how you. Roberts does when he comes out and why aren't you wearing any shirts? And Roberts is like, no, you're not putting these guys on report. I'm the one who will take it. I'm the one who said that they could do this. Yeah, there's very much the classic juxtaposition of what a good officer and what good leadership is supposed to be. Now, granted, I think there is space to argue here that while the lack of discipline that has kind of built up on this ship is due to the mistreatment of the sailors from the captain at the same time like roberts isn't perfect no i think he's actually kind of a bad officer in a lot of respects yeah kind of because you see especially in the second half of the film after he puts uh, one of them on report and all that that it's kind of like it's almost like he comes out and says hi to all of them and they're just they're very cold with him and they're like good evening sir good evening sir and then they're like we're going to bed right and they and they move off and it's almost that moment where you're like oh you're upset that they're not being your friends but they're your subordinates they're not supposed to be your friends right, right? and that's where he kind of crosses swims across that line and i think that's addressed in the scene with william powell where powell says does this crew owe you something what do you mean by that you talk as if they did and that's where we see that moment of realization of like, ah, oh, I am being that guy. He takes on that burden initially with the intention of being, you know, pure, if you will, about it, where he's not going to let it affect the men and he's just going to soldier on with the burden on himself. And by the end, we see that like, that's just not possible. You can't when these men are rejecting him because they feel like he is seeking promotion. Yeah, but even earlier in scenes where where the captain tells them to put their shirts back on and they all look to um, Roberts and then he says, go ahead and put on your shirts. Like, yeah, oh yeah. He's not wrong. That is rank insubordination. The scene when the captain wants to see him and he says, tell him I'm busy. I don't know that that's necessarily something you just get to do. Not the way you say that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And also the the idea that 
Dan, maybe you can, you can enlighten me on this. So you're there and you're doing your job. And then the captain wants to see you. Isn't there, or shouldn't there be somebody there with you? Like a subordinate that you can be like, captain wants to see me here. Take the megaphone. You should be capable of guiding this, this boat alongside your ship to, to resupply. Right? Like, isn't there some kind of redundancy there? Wouldn't Dowdy be the one to relieve him? Yeah, so if Dowdy were there, so the way rank structure works in the Navy, which I will not go through it in detail because it's a little confusing compared to the other branches, but basically you got your seamen and your lowly sailors of, you know, first, second, and third rank, and then the next three ranks are petty officers, and petty officers starting at third class, then second class, then first class are the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers. So they're the ones who can actually take the authority from an officer. In this case, for example, if there was a second class there and he was the highest ranking sailor, what Fauna's character could have done, what Roberts could have done is given him the megaphone or whatever he was holding and said, okay, you're in charge, finish this cargo load. I'm going to go talk to the captain. And that person would have all of the authority that that lieutenant had because he's acting in his stead, right? It's funny that he's referred to as Dowdy all the time. I think in, again, I don't know about the 40s, but generally speaking in real life, the chief would be called chief. Chief is already familiar enough, right? Chief petty officer is the next rank up. So a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps is a chief petty officer in the Navy. So it takes probably at least eight to 12 years to get to that rank on average. And he would be above all the NCOs. So he's probably the highest ranking enlisted dude, like a Sergeant Major in the equivalent in the army, right? right? He's kind of the right-hand man. So if the chief was around, the chief would take the authority from the officer. If someone else is around, you just go to the next senior guy. And that's what Roberts should have done if he was behaving properly is, oh, the captain wants to see me. You don't just drop everything irresponsibly. You say, here, you're in charge. And then you give him some guidance where you say, make sure that such and such happens by this time. I'll be back in 15 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah, that seemed like a reasonable response to, hey, the captain wants to see you. Yeah, there's a delicate procedure going on right now. I'll be there in five. James Cagney's character is called Captain, even though his rank is Lieutenant Commander, Mm -hmm. because the captain of a ship is always called Captain. Yep. He's in command of that ship, yes. And that's relevant to the discussion at hand, because he's very intent on being able to wear that hat of a full commander. Yep. He went out and he bought it, and he keeps it in plastic in a safe in his cabin. Talk about show, don't tell, right? When, When he goes into the safe, and I'm like, oh... What's he going to pull out, right? Is it like a service revolver or something crazy? And then he pulls out just the hat that he's already bought with the markings of his next rank. And I'm like, oh, okay, this guy's a promotion hound. Like, he is going for that rank. I thought that was a great scene. Yeah, so Cagney is not a character that we see a whole lot in war films in general, and in particular World War II. He is so nakedly selfish and this is something that really differentiates it from the Kane mutiny in that i don't feel like bogart's character is necessarily like he's not chasing clout he's just paranoid and, and afraid he's just trying to survive from day to day right right whereas cagney feels it's much more about 
how can I manipulate this to my best advantage? And I think the thing that irritated me the most about the movie is his continuing like, oh, you college boy, you college boy. I had to put up with this college boy. And I was like, bro, get over it. Get over it. <laughs> like, I just had no patience for that shit. He's got a massive inferiority complex. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that was justifiable at that time. You know, things were far more stratified then. But now it just comes off as so petty. Well, I think it was petty at the time as well. The fight between him and Roberts in the cabin. I don't think that was designed to really give you empathy for the captain, I think it was really just to maybe give you more of a glimpse of his motivations without gaining your sympathy. Yes, yes. It's one of the scenes where the fact that Henry Fonda was, even by Hollywood standards, way too old for his role. Oh, God, he was he was 49 when he was cast yeah. in this. But the scenes where he's with James Cagney, where James Cagney is clearly older than him, I think highlights the way they tried to hire people older than Henry Fonda to make him look relatively appropriate by contrast. Like William Powell. This is definitely one of those movies where my my husband, who's not as aware of this kind of thing as we are, he's like, what the fuck is is Jack Lemmon, the youngest guy we've got in this voyage? Because that doesn't seem realistic. And I was like, I think it might be actually, honey. He is, right? And I I think he was wearing a hairpiece in this, Henry Fonda. Oh, really? I believe it. I think they gave him a hairpiece for this, if, I, if I'm if i remembering correctly. They at least did a die job. The reason I bring it up is that the captain's character complaining about college boys is specifically coming from a place of, now I can't tell whether he's a Mustang, where he was enlisted and started out as a regular sailor and then eventually went to officer candidate school, became an officer, because he was in the Merchant Marines before, but it's unclear whether he was an officer in the Merchant Marines and in charge of stuff or whether he was really like a lowly sailor. So, But it's clear that he didn't go to college because he keeps complaining about these college boys. And it's like, that would have had the impact if people like Jack Lemmon's character of, of Ensign Pulver and... Lieutenant J.G. Roberts were actually young men fresh out of college that are 22, 23 and the captains in his, you know, early 40s, mid 40s, something like that. I feel like that would have worked. But you're kind of like they're both old. It's just like Cagney's older than Mm -hmm. him. It's I don't know. It's kind of like the illusion starts to fall apart a little bit in those scenes. But like you said, then the doctor comes in and you're like, this guy's a thousand, you know, it's it's this very strange thing. Don't mind the gray hair and the baggy eyes. A wonderful (laughs) sense of humor. Oh, my God. Don't mind the guy that's about to collect Social Security like next year. Literally. I mean, I can't hold it against them for cash. William Powell because he's so fucking amazing. He's such a great actor. And he does a bang up job in this role. How do they go? Uh, Dong dong, ding ding, or ding dong? It's important. Uh, Ding dong? Dong ding? No second guessing. Yep. (laughs) Nope, nope. Wrong answer. Should go dong dong. Two aspirin marked for duty. See, I, I I thought the doc 
messed up in that scene because he shouldn't have given the correct answer because then on the next sick call they can come in and give the right answer it's like he should have just kept it to himself oh but no then he'll say oh it's changed to to ding dong (laughs) oh that appendix of yours certainly gets around reba now it's on the wrong side there's a general order against what those sailors are doing i forget the number of the order but that's called malingering oh yes we talked about it in Patton. yeah there's a, a lot of malingering also we're in not the most um plum of positions when it comes to brave young men so they take what they can get <laughs> well also i think the the doc has a very interesting perspective he is he is definitely the voice of reason and wisdom mm-hmm. in the midst of all of the absurdity of what's going on in the movie he appreciates it he rolls with it he understands where it's coming from he's not mad at it and that's all of the absurdity, whether it's from the captain, whether it's from the crew, whether it's just from the the chaos that ensues from Pulver bringing nurses on board. My favorite is when um, Roberts calls for the doctor. He says, oh, the doctor, come double time. Yeah. <laughs> well, the doctor, please report to the captain's cabin on the double. He's like, I'm going to just shift my cuffs. We're going to come up real she slow. Is chilling. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this guy's seen too much of this shit for sure. It's almost a comedic trope in older movies that like the person that you don't like is in some kind of distress and needs a doctor. And everybody's like, man, we should probably do something about that. And then they <laughs> do it, but they do it really slowly. Like there's a f- it was kind of an established bit. Oh, okay. In in older movies. It's very Marx Brothers. But yeah, so that was that's what that put me in in mind of was just like one of those comedic bits that used to be commonplace but isn't anymore, but I still thought was hilarious. Yeah, they they played it off well. I have a question for you guys, and I think there are a couple of deeper themes to talk about in this film, but one of them caught me by surprise and it was part of just dialogue. It was in a conversation and relatively explicit, but I had never seen it before, especially in a film from this era. And it's also kind of an opinion that I personally hold that is, I don't think super popular. So I don't bring it up very much because I feel like I'm kind of on an Island on this. Clearly I have an opinion for being in the military, but I want to see what you guys think. So the doctor at one point is trying to console Lieutenant Roberts about the fact that he's not in the action and heroism and all that and, you know, not winning a Medal of Honor. He uses the hitting the patella on uh, Jack Lemon's knee as a way to describe it. But he basically says that heroism is just a reflex. Heroism is a consequence of circumstance. It's just you haven't had the opportunity to be a hero, but it doesn't mean that you're not you're not capable of that. It's just that you haven't been there. That's mostly what makes physical heroism opportunity to reflex i think that 75 out of 100 young males have that reflex you take any one of them say even frank thurlow pulver here put him into a b-29 over japan do you know what you'd have no i don't doctor you'd have pulver as a congressional medal of honor winner and i often find that while none of us know how we would behave in combat Even if we were all trained in the military and we all, you know, had the appropriate training to know what to do in combat, it's like nobody actually knows how they would behave under fire and whether they would be brave or whether they wouldn't or how scared you would be, etc. But 
I think that when Liam brought up for the first time in Saving Private Ryan that the concept of greatest generation is something that was it Tom Brokaw? Yep, Tom yes. Brokaw coined it. That Tom Brokaw coined in a book. And I was like, yeah, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to anyone, but I don't think it's fair to call any generation the greatest generation because a lot of it, in my opinion, is based on circumstance. I think that while every generation has its faults and its pros and cons, every generation kind of steps up to the plate of what the challenge is for that generation. And so I thought it was interesting for the doc to bring that up because I was like, oh, wow, I actually agree with the doc here that most people in the military would act heroically based on their training. You know, sure, there are people who wouldn't and there are people who have been executed for treason and stuff. Right, but he gives like a pretty realistic estimate. It's like, what, 75, 25? Like, it's a pretty, in my mind, thoughtful estimate of the folks who are going to follow their training and step up versus those who are going to not do that. Yeah. And and if you read about this, there are also really interesting studies based on actual data that show that quite a large percentage of specifically infantry soldiers in World War One and World War Two, in moments where they had to finally kill a fellow human, actually shot high on purpose and did not fire into the enemy. Like mm-hmm. I've heard that before myself. Mm-hmm. I haven't read these. Uh, studies myself, but I know that actual historians uh, have looked into this and have percentages and have data on how many soldiers in the infantry in World War One and World War Two actually did this. And it's a higher number than you would think. So it's very interesting to talk about combat from a civilian perspective, but also from these guys in the military, quote unquote, that are really doing civilian jobs. They're just moving cargo around. They're not under fire. So uh, that kind of came at me from left field. I did not expect the doc to bring that conversation up. How did that one hit you guys? It, it puts me in mind of uh, a line from the mightiest of mighty Boston's. <laughs> What? I'm not a coward, I've just never been tested. I'd like to think that if I was, I would pass. Anyone? No? Okay. Yeah, sure. I know that line. I know what you're talking about. Anyway. (laughs) Well, no, it's funny that you mentioned that, Dan, because more the something that you said at the end there, because you've always come to this podcast with a very specific perspective that you're like, I'm a Marine, I served, but you weren't necessarily like in the front lines in the shit. You were in air traffic control, which is a job that you transitioned very successfully and seamlessly to civilian life. Yeah, some could say I was in the rear with the gear, even when I was deployed. Right. So, you know, I I was interested to see your kind of perspective with this in a, a support or a technical position and how you could relate to that kind of mentality of either like knowing how important your your position was at the time or if you felt like there was more you should be doing or things like that. And that's not necessarily a question that I'm asking you or that you have to answer, but just I was interested to see your take on this movie, knowing that that's kind of what your experience was. Yeah, I mean, I I think for my background, I am very like I wouldn't go back and change anything about my service. I was lucky. I got promoted. I got to get all the technical qualifications and certifications that I wanted for a civilian career. And I still got to deploy, which not everyone does. So I still feel like I got to do my part right later on, whether I politically agree with the first or second Iraq or whatever is kind of like a separate thing in my mind, but it's like in your time in the service, if you're going to volunteer and you're going to sign up, most people want to feel like they did something right. And clearly I knew that I was more valuable 
employing the technical expertise that I had controlling airplanes, but that indirectly the planes that I was working were out doing combat air patrol and helping out infantry troops. And so it's like, if I do my job well, these planes are going to go out and actually save lives or quote unquote, kill bad guys or whatever. And, you know, delivering toilet paper is maybe a few steps removed from that. But again, it's clear that it's still just as important of a job. That's how I look at my job nowadays, too, as an air traffic controller and as a pilot, even for not me, but for people who do fly planes, you are one man or woman doing that job. But for every pilot that flies a Delta airplane, like this got to be, you know, something ridiculous, like 40, 50 other people that have to be doing their jobs properly for you to be able to do your job and for you getting on a flight to be able to get where you're going. So, yeah, it's just a matter of mental attitude and perspective. The other thing is, I feel like sometimes at certain times in the military, if you're volunteering to do something where there's a lot of attrition, it's like, no, I want to transfer to the infantry. I want to go to the front. Like there are historically times where that has worked and they'll take you. There are other times where like when my best friend was deploying and going to the detachment and going to Iraq before me, I tried everything I could to volunteer and go with them because I was like, well, if you're going to go, I want to go. We might as well go together. What if something happens to you and I'm not there? Like, I don't want, you know, we kind of had those conversations. Yeah. Right. And I didn't get taken. And I, I had to say bye to my friend and let him go. And like, I didn't, I couldn't force my way onto a plane. Like that's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. And then I went later and that was the way it was. So yeah, I can kind of relate to some of uh, Robert's frustration, but the military is a big, giant machine, and you play the role. Sometimes you get to volunteer for stuff. Sometimes you get voluntold, as we call it, for stuff. But you don't always have full control over where you end up going and what you end up doing. So it can be frustrating. You know, and it's it's interesting that they, you know, we've said it on the podcast and they quip about it in the movie. But for all their talk about, like, you know, transporting toilet paper and toothpaste, he also got a ship that had been out of fresh fruit for like two months, a shipment of fresh fruit. He had to know that he was doing something that needed to be done there, you know? Exactly. He had to have some kind of understanding of the ramifications of his cargo making decisions on this. Cause obviously he did because he goes and brings that whiskey to the cargo master to say, Hey man, maybe we could get like a, you wasted that bottle of scotch on a man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So let's talk about the performances on this. We need to talk about Jack Lemmon. We've talked about a few, but we've got to talk about Jack Lemmon. So Jack Lemmon in this is Frank Thurlow Pulver. (laughs) So Jack Lemmon was born in 1925. So he's at least. He's probably 29 when this was shot. 27 to 29, depending on when they shot this. And he is absolutely looks the youngest guy in this who's not one of the common seamen other than um john wayne's kid there's a couple of them that look younger like again i can't remember the character's name but the one with the hat on the back of his head that guy could be 12 for all i know it's true that's true yeah like technically jack lemon is not outside the range of the age that you could be as an ensign had you been enlisted first Mm. so if he had done a stint in the navy for a while as a sailor made it up to 
petty officer, second class or whatever, and then gone into an officer program. Then when he became an officer, he would still be an ensign, but he would be 29 instead of being 22 or 23. So he's the one guy. It's definitely not unrealistic. I think that is clearly not the case for Ensign Pulver, though. Also true. (laughs) I think he is very, very much just got into this thing, has never been in the Navy before, misses chasing girls back in Iowa City. Exactly. I read a... I think it was the New Yorker or maybe it was the New York Times. One of those two reviews talked about how there was kind of three generations in this. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's Cagney, Fonda and Lemon. Well, Cagney and William Powell. William Powell probably a little bit older than Cagney. Right. But they they are the like original Hollywood. Henry Fonda kind of straddles the middle. And then Jack Lemon is like the new guy is how they put it in, mm-hmm. in the review, which I I laughed at as someone who's a longtime <laughs> Jack Lemon fan. I've seen so much of his stuff. And he definitely gives a quote unquote new guy performance in this. He's not as out there as he gets at certain points in his career, but he's still pushing the comedic level in this film further than I think anyone else is. And he's just bursting with energy. So much energy. That's Jack Lemmon in every film. I mean, he's he was great. Like every scene that he's in, you're kind of just, especially me not having seen him in many things, certainly never as a young man. I'm just kind of like, oh, what's this guy going to pull off next? And then <laughs> eventually there's a giant explosion. And he comes <laughs> in so in great. rags covered in suds. I was like, wow, okay, this is very Jack Lemmon. Right? That whole scene was pretty hilarious. The first scene he has with Cagney. Oh, God. When when he wanders out of his out of his bunk for some reason, you know, and he's and he finally runs face to face with the captain. Pulver. How is it I don't see you around much, Pulver? <laughs> Often wondered the same thing myself, sir. How long have you been aboard, Pulver? Fourteen months, sir. Fourteen months! Cagney read the script and he knew that he had to like after they read through it one time he said we need to rehearse this a lot because if we don't i'm not going to be able to not laugh when you say 14 months sir right it like it just tickled cagney so much jack lemon's performance that even when they did shoot it he said he had just a monster of a time not breaking character and they actually became very good friends up through the end of cagney's life yep It was very sweet. And that's the weird thing is that reading about this film, you get the kind of sense of who the people were backstage, which you don't get in all film history, just reading reviews and stuff. And in this one, there was definitely the sense of who's the asshole here. (laughs) And it it was absolutely John Ford. (laughs) But Cagney and Lemon formed like this long term relationship and Lemon and Fonda, like everybody else was kind of like making it work except John Ford. Who was a dick. Well, and there's actually a picture that, you know, I, on Facebook, I follow a lot of groups and pages that are all just like, you know, stills from classic Hollywood and, you know, just different things. And one that pops up every now and again is this picture of James Cagney, Jack Lemmon, William Powell and Ward Bond. 
just sitting around on couches. Somebody's playing a guitar and they're all obviously singing with great enthusiasm. And every time I see it, I'm like, there's no other movie that could be a backstage photo of except for Mr. Roberts. Just like that collection of dudes (laughs) just sitting there having a good time. I was like, oh, that's it warms my heart to see. But yeah, Jack Lemmon in this. When he starts talking about the firecracker. Or women. Or women. Whenever Jack Lemon starts talking, it's just hilarious. He's been reading God's Little Acre for over a year now. He's underlined every erotic passage and added exclamation points. And after a certain pornographic climax, he's inserted the words, well written. Yes! And then he goes and shows the doc. He's like, yep. And then he, exclamation, good writing! I was like, oh my god. This isn't a pop gun, it's a firecracker. I used fulminate of mercury. (laughs) They're like, he's gonna blow up the ship. And then he did. So, I have a couple of technical questions for you guys, and it'll depend on whether the version of this that you watched had the same quote-unquote flaws, or at least for one of these. So, one, I'm surprised that this got an Oscar nomination for Best Sound, because I can't think of another example of ADR that was done so poorly so often, or that was just so distracting so many times. Mm. Because usually I have to read through the goofs on something. And I like skip through that part when somebody just starts nitpicking like, oh, in this one scene, this character's whistling. But if you like zoom oh. in with a tool, you can tell that his lips aren't pursed. And it's like, OK, who gives a shit? Right. Oh, no. Jack Lemon singing is always ADR. And like his lips aren't moving. There's a lot of ADR in this. It's bad. It's not just him. There's a scene with the binoculars mm-hmm. where the first sailor who's laying down and takes watch, quote unquote, And literally, the camera is on him, and he's saying two full-ass sentences, and his lips are not moving. And I was like, okay, I'm like, honestly, at this point, I'm getting distracted by this because it's so bad. And there's just other times where the sound is just completely off of the lips. Or again, anytime there's a scene where I, I think it's even Roberts in a moment of triumph or a moment where he's walking away particularly proud of himself where he starts singing or whistling it's after he throws the palm tree overboard and he starts singing along with uh john philip souza yes and it's from behind so you can't even see his lips and yet i could still tell that it just was not a performance in the moment because it sounded so off i was like this sounds like somebody playing something over this guy walking away it doesn't sound at all like it was recorded there yeah i mean what did you guys think especially compared to other old film did it did it pull you out more or less or no it's it's pretty terrible so i think the award for sound recording is a bit deceptive in this case Because um, this is before lav mics, which lav mics are the tiny little mics that people tuck inside their clothes in order to get the great sound quality that we expect from all movies these days and film. But don't most movies use overhead boom mics? No. A lot of times they'll use boom mics still. Yes, but for something like this, where we are so far away, because a lot of these shots Mm. are pretty far back. Okay. You know, that like for the majority of it, like the people are in the middle ground rather than the foreground. In those instances, you use nowadays, you use lav mics, which you just tuck inside someone's clothes and there's like a battery pack in the back and, and it records their audio no problem. They didn't have any of that shit at this time and the film really suffers for that. And so I think because they did a lot of the filming like at or on a boat or a lot of it was on location yeah they tried to do a lot of this that way the sound recording is given a praise for making it work 
Like it might not be the equivalent of master and commander where that's totally like the sound is taken with the, with the video. This is not that case. And they couldn't do it because the technology at the time just wasn't there to support it. So, and also sound, the whole concept of Oscars for sound has shifted so many times throughout Academy's history. Even just the past couple of years, they changed it to one Oscar for sound where it used to be split into sound editing and sound mixing. I have, I have thoughts and I hate it. (laughs) I'm right there with you. I hate a lot of things, (laughs) but no, the place where I, you know, I'm used to it. I've been watching this movie since I was little. So not a whole lot of it distracts me anymore, but it more just kind of amuses me a little bit. This last time I watched it was the first time I'd watched it in like a high definition transfer. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe I've, I might've noticed some things more this time. Like the fact that he's not whistling and singing when they go to the Island to go to the hospital. You got the Warner color in CinemaScope feel. Absolutely. I did. I I love that They said that. and, And honestly, this time around, I was like, I guess I see it. I see what you're selling here and I'm buying it. Dude, I sorry to interrupt for a second. I read in the trivia that they were originally planning on filming this in 3D and I was like, in 1955, I don't even know what that means. Dude, yeah, they well, I mean Hitchcock directed things in 3D. Really? Bad is what it means. Dial M for Murder was originally shown in 3D. And so was that the classic like uh red and blue glasses you go in, they yes. give you the glasses? Yep. Exactly. I didn't realize that technology was that old. Oh, yeah. It's it's been around for a while. It just wasn't any good. So they stopped using it for a long time. Right. The scene where I find it the most interesting, the ADR, is when... (laughs) Sorry, when Pulver blows up the laundry. And all the suds come out. And he's coming out, like, washed out in this tidal wave of, of laundry detergent suds. That was such good physical oh, comedy. When he tries to go up the stairs and he grabs the handrail and his hand just slides down. And he slides that right down. Perfection. It's hilarious. So I don't really care, but you hear the whistling played over it, which he wouldn't have been able to do if he was buried well over his head in soap suds. Right. But also, if you listen, you can still hear Jack Lemony yelling. Yeah. <laughs> under it like behind the whistle it's real quiet but you can hear him dog dog yelling and whistling at the same time and then like the whistling cuts out and then it goes to him going dog wow like you know just yep that whole thing but you can hear that a little bit earlier but yeah the 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 high definition transfer that i saw of this was really breathtaking in parts and there are times that you look at it and you go no that's that's John Ford knowing his business and shooting at sea, especially like those opening shots of the, the convoy that he sees in the beginning. Right. Mm-hmm. That's never looked better. I watched this the first 20 times that I've seen it on old VHS copies of varying quality. And it's so many weird things have happened to this movie over the years. I saw it when I was little, like we rented it from our video store and it was this it was the movie that we watched but it was not in widescreen and it was very grainy like it had not been cleaned up at all years later i bought it for myself on vhs and it was cleaned up a little bit like it looked a little bit sharper it was still not widescreen but they had taken out 
the audio track where they were playing John Philip Sousa. <laughs> oh God. During the palm tree scene. Mm-hmm. And they replaced it with something completely different that didn't match up at all with the action on screen where like he has the idea and he gets up and he starts marching in time with the music and up the ladder and he salutes the palm tree and then he grabs it and he throws it and it all times out perfectly to that and like the cymbals are crashing and he chucks it into the water and then goes off singing all of that audio was cut out and replaced with something else entirely Oh, how weird. It's terrible. It was really bad and really jarring. So, like, I watched that VHS copy of it once and then never watched it again. <laughs> so, I was very glad to see that the version that I just watched on HBO Max was not only in high definition and widescreen, but also restored the original audio. Yeah, I guess in the end, it does stick out a little bit as bad in this film, but I think mostly it just reminds me how good it is in so many other films because it reminds me that in this era, so much of the sound was recorded later and they were redubbing their lines. And there are plenty of films I've noticed where it's seamless and it just kind of reminds you how difficult the job that was, especially before digital media where you're splicing things and by hand, etc. So... Speaking of the HD transfer and the actual visuals, so the other question I had was, again, this happens at least 10 times that I noticed in the film, but I can describe it in one scene where the plane is landing and you're seeing a wide shot of the cargo ship on the right of the screen. And then the plane is on the far back left side of the screen. And it's shifting from another scene. Like they're on the deck Mm -hmm. with Roberts. And then all of a sudden you just have a cut to this scene. I noticed this during the cuts. For the first maybe one second or so of the cut, the video was much grainier. And then all of a sudden it shifts and it's like high definition And like, even the plane, all of a sudden I could see so much more detail in the plane. And I was like, that's weird. I saw that happen several times on the way into a cut Mm -hmm. and sometimes on the way out of a cut where at the end of a scene, it got grainy right before it switched and cut to another scene. Do you have any idea what that could have been? Again, it's possible that it was just the downloaded version that I was watching, but I was wondering what technically that could have possibly been. It sounds like something that happened in the restoration, most likely. Yeah. Okay. You know, I can't necessarily summon the image right now in my in my brain right now of what you're talking about, but I've seen things like that. But it's not unheard of for there to be a frame that they just couldn't, a certain section of film that maybe that negative doesn't exist anymore, or like that that part of the negative was was beyond restoring. Right, they just kind of had to make it work. They just had to take the best version that they had previously and stick it in there since they couldn't restore it from the original negative. With film preservation and stuff like that, you kind of just piece together the best thing that you can. Right. Yeah, I mean, if that was the case, I would say that it's interesting that they chose to keep those because again it's probably a second so it's more like 24 frames but it's interesting that instead of cutting that second out that looks grainier they kept it in which is way more jarring to me if i had been editing i would have just cut that second of the scene out and started with the higher quality stuff that you could actually but again it's hard to know exactly what happened there are certain instances that and you'll see this with i think the the judy garland a star is born this happens Yep, it's a Frank Capra film called Lost Horizon, where certain sections of the image have been completely lost, but they still have the audio. 
So you'll see versions of it where you'll be watching this movie and all of a sudden it'll cut to production stills shown in a sequence that are approximations of Mm -hmm. what that scene looked like while it plays the audio. Oh, cool. Film preservation is a, is a tricky business. And once something's lost, it's very possible that it gets lost forever. But then sometimes, you know, like what happened with, uh, the passion of Joan of Arc, where they thought the entire film was completely lost, except for like a five minute segment of it. But then they found an absolutely pristine copy in perfect condition decades later in a closet in an insane asylum in Norway. <laughs> Weird shit like that happens. Uh, so sometimes you get that and sometimes things are li- just actually lost forever. Let's talk about the ending. Did you guys see the ending coming? I can't answer that question because I've been watching this since I was eight years old. So. All right, Dan, you and me, did you see the ending coming? Uh, no, absolutely not. I didn't really try and predict what the ending of the film was going to be because, to be honest, I just expected it to be something cheesy and feel-goody. So it did surprise me a little bit, especially the way they did it. And I did really like seeing, again, not having been exposed to Jack Lemmon in general, but especially as a young man, I did really like to see the contrast between his brilliant comedic performances and his physical comedy to a more somber moment. But they led you into it with the letter from Roberts first. And I right. I don't know how the play or the book is, but I thought that was a really cool way of doing it where it's like, oh, Roberts is writing and updating them. And it's like. He's having a blast. He's finally doing his part in the war. They've been attacked a few times, but everything's going well. And then he goes, oh, and here's a letter from Ensign so-and-so, his friend, their college friend. And then you see his face drop and and just, I thought that was really, really well done. What about you, Katie? Oh, yeah. I saw it coming. <laughs> oh, okay. As a student of older film. Yeah, it's totally that. My husband hasn't seen as much older film as I have, and he disliked this movie a whole lot more than I did because of what I call uh, the cringe factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the cannibals line. Oh, get them cannibals off this vessel! Get them off! But continue. <laughs> yeah, there's so much cringe in this shit, and I will definitely get into it in my breakdown. But... I kind of looked at this and was like, okay, there is a planned story here beyond, it's, it's so hard to describe. Like, I knew that that was what was coming from the beginning because he was so all about it. He's all about sacrificing his life and doing all these things. And it's meant to make you question, was it worth it? It's getting into so many layers and so... From the point when it becomes clear that the crew is who has arranged his uh, his transfer, that's when I was like, oh, okay, well, he's dead now. He is dead as a doornail because he's done all of his duties. He has proven himself. And now his reward in his mind almost is to go and die in battle when really the challenging thing is to survive. Man, I really suck at predicting things. I feel like constantly <laughs> friends and Jack would be like, oh, I saw this coming. And I was like, really? I didn't see it at all. Liam and I have been watching old movies since I, since probably before I could talk. So, <laughs> But it's, it's not telegraphed, but it feels impending. As soon as he leaves 
and the letters start being read. That was really the point that tipped me off where he leaves the ship and the movie isn't fucking over. I was like, oh, he's dead now because why the hell else are we continuing this film if it's not to see these men's reaction to this very inspirational man's death? It's uh, what Thanos would call inevitable. I mean, I, I thought one of the things we were going to see is the captain getting his comeuppance, which... No! A little bit. He, he's, he's not rid of the pain in the ass that, uh, that was Robert's. Yeah, the thorn in his side has been quickly replaced. That's definitely what I caught from the ending, for sure. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the ending, Liam? The ending has always kind of been partially ruined for me by the use of the word crud. Now, what's all this crud about no movie tonight? And they say crud a couple of times. But even when I was little, I was like, P should have said crap. I mean, in reality, what's all this shit about us not watching a movie? I know, that's what he should have said. But even like, even like little, like 10 year old me was like, he could have said crap, right? Like, I mean, come on. Yes. And they had used that word in, in the 50s, right? I don't know when crap came about, actually. But that was the... Even somebody that was raised on old, heavily censored cinema, it didn't scan right. Like it didn't, it didn't roll off the tongue properly or it it hit my ear in a weird way. But I also think it's kind of ironic that he goes off to fight in the war and still dies drinking coffee in the mess hall. You know, I think that adds like a little bit of a sting when they're just like coffee. Yeah, everyone feels I couldn't tell whether it was this level of like disgust, like coffee. It was. It was like they don't drink coffee. They drink booze on that ship. Right. Right. He went over there to fight and die and he's not even drinking booze. He's dying drinking coffee. What a waste. He left his overly mundane purgatory to go get his reward and go fight on the front lines of the war. And he he still died just sitting in the mess drinking coffee with another officer. And I thought that was kind of sad. And I think his men thought that was sad too. Yeah. But I do love that William Powell at the end is like, Dowdy is like, Oh, can I post this? And William Powell's like, no, no, no. You post this one. Mm -hmm. You post this one because this is what he would want from his men that he did all this for. And who did all this for him? Not the, you died senselessly because of a fucking kamikaze pilot. You fight and do your best and think about those around you and try to make this incredibly difficult struggle better for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's the moment that William Powell gets to really bring to it is no, no, no. Let's remember what he wanted, not this horrific final moment. And I, I did find, especially when I was little, I did find the ending rather inspirational, not from Mr. Roberts perspective, but I really, really identified with Ensign Pulver at the end where I was really happy to see him get his backbone. And I didn't expect it mostly because I've seen a shit ton of Jack Lemmon movies. My, one of my favorite films of all time is The Apartment. Fabulous film. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. I still haven't seen it. It's so good. There's only, um, you know, so many films that can make uh, the suicide attempt of one of the main characters uh, a comedic fucking plot point. And Billy Wilder is the only one who could pull that shit off, I think. But in this, we get to see so much depth in just a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's so satisfying. Even the men who... uh, It feels uncomfortable how... um, caveman-like these men are portrayed yes they're just so stupid 
To the point where some of them are are like, Hey guys, what's happening down there? Can you see anything? The guy who comes on, my favorite. The passageway is solid soap suds. No, no, that guy's also great. No, no, the guy who, uh, the, the, like, milit- the army police guy who comes on to be like, yeah, you're, you're not really allowed to leave the boat anymore. And I, I kept asking my husband, I was like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Why is he talking like this? He's, he's like, just southern. He's like, well, I think he's trying to do a southern accent, but he's not actually he's not actually southern. So uh, what's wrong with him? He's just from Alabama. It's okay. Well, what we call in Alabama, yeah, we call the same thing in Nebraska. I love that line. Yes, but see, like I I have family from who grew up in Alabama, so I was like, are you what's going on here? It was just hilarious to me. Henry Fonda's also originally from Nebraska, yeah, so like that's just a that's some extra extra comedy sprinkled on that line. That was perfection. And I I just couldn't figure out if that guy was supposed to be really drunk where he's coming to tell them this. And I was like, why are you telling them this? You're also a completely wasted. And then I figured out that he's just doing a really bad Southern accent. He's very slow and Southern. It reminded me of what was that movie we watched with Burt Lancaster and seven days in May. Yes. He's doing the, the Senator from seven days in May. If he were stupid. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I was like, okay, well, I guess if that senator... Not Edmund O'Brien. No, if that senator were, like, really, really wasted and trying to communicate this information, this is how it would come out. Bigger bombs, bitter bombs, more bombs. This is related, although a little bit of a tangent. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, but I believe Stuff You Should Know did an episode on this, and it's an episode on... I want to say hookworm, but one of yes. those parasitic worms. Yes. Mm-hmm. So did you guys hear this? That one of the reasons why there's a trope of Southerners uh, talking kind of slow and sounding dumb is that because in rural areas where you had outhouses and people walked barefoot a lot, there was actually a lot of because that's how you get hookworm is it comes in through your feet. So if you walk barefoot through unsanitary conditions you can get hookworm and hookworm eventually gets a hold of you and starts affecting your brain and actually does slow down your speech so they think that's where originally the stereotype of southerners talking slow comes from they did a, a bit on that on uh, radio lab as well mm-hmm. it was you know actually the development of like how far you have to dig down an outhouse so you don't get hookworm And now it's time for the breakdown, the point in our show when we ask the three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, let her rip. I think there are a couple of goals here, and I think they are very different depending on who you're talking to. John Ford's goal is very different than the actor's goal, very different than the later director, Mervyn Leroy's goal. And I think the ones that I want to highlight out of this are, to me, this film on a deeper level is really trying to portray the difficulties of doing an incredibly necessary, like everybody needs fucking toilet paper at war. I mean, you can get by without it, but your time's going to be really not so fun. 
you know, toilet paper and all of the necessities. But doing that job is incredibly mundane and dealing with the complications of long-term service and doing something that you don't feel is fulfilling. I think there's a lot of exploration of that. And I think there it's also a exploration of frustration by an incredibly incompetent captain who is in no way aligned with the goals of the rest of either the military or your men. So much so that this fucking guy doesn't even know all the ensigns. Th- this scene <laughs> where um, he he asks him, like, how long have you been here? He asks Jack Lemon, how long have you been on board? 14 months. And I was like, dude, the only way that you don't know that is if you're a bad fucking manager. There is no way that I would have an employee for 14 months and I wouldn't know their goddamn name or, or even of their existence. Yeah, it's not like there's 5,000 people on this. It's not an aircraft carrier. <laughs> Although I think the, the joke is that Jack Lemon, the pulver has been hiding from him, but he should still know that he has an officer of laundry and morale. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm getting to is like Lemon has obviously been hiding from him for so long because they make it a point to talk about that in the movie. But it is such a dereliction of duty as a commander not to know that shit that it's shocking almost. And I think the film is also trying to really explore the nitty gritty of war from the far removed front lines like obviously these guys are not going into battle on a daily basis but they are still doing an incredibly necessary and important job and their discipline and actions are affecting everything else in the war effort and that's a very different place than going to you know omaha beach d-day all of that stuff you're you face different challenges much less deadly challenges usually (laughs) and I think it does it pretty fucking well. Also, the horniness. So much horniness. (laughs) I have never seen a World War II movie that was so good at displaying the horniness of the men involved. (laughs) Straight up. I was like, "Mm, I get it. I get it. But you're maybe taking it a bit too far. And then there are the scenes where we realize what has happened to all those men who've gone out on their liberty and they've decided you know i'm gonna rip the clothes off of women and break into houses and smash shit and i was like mm, we've lost all my sympathy all my sympathy out the window for that was it on target generally yes i think despite all of the drama and the differences between the creative forces that were involved in this The film in general and everybody who worked on it does its best to portray their side of things, whether it be Jack Lemmon being the comedic guy, Henry Fonda portraying the duality of being a good officer in both supporting his men and not disrespecting his captain and him being a good officer in dealing with a really shitty superior comes off really well. And I think this movie succeeds at being funny even now, which is really hard. We are almost 70 years on. Comedy is not a thing that lasts. Try watching an Adam Sandler movie now. You are not going to laugh the same way you did when it came out. And this movie still succeeds in 
being funny and meaningful in what it tries to communicate. And I think that's pretty fucking impressive. I don't know if I liked it, though. That's a complicated <laughs> thing. Ah, I liked Henry Fonda. I liked all the acting and the conflict and all of that. But just like the gross sexual politics and the racism that were very inherent in this film. Although they were like kind of delicately laced in the background as casual jokes. You know, like the captain referring to uh, the Polynesian people as cannibals for, for absolutely no reason to it's not like they were attacking them or anything no i think no. that was more of a comment on the character than on the natives totally it, it is absolutely meant that but the fact that it's in the film and all in today's day and age is very cringe and this movie is of the time period which i call there's going to be a cringe factor and this movie is not super high on the cringe factor scale in my mind but it still has some of those elements. But in general, I was very much able to kind of overlook that and see what they were going for beyond the surface level. So I don't know whether or not I liked it, but I'm glad I watched it. And I think that's good enough. Dan? Dan? Yeah, I, I thought about, even while I was watching this, I was kind of thinking about our show and thinking about what's the objective here, you know? and. Considering that John Ford was in the Navy and made it all the way to, I, I want to say, rear, some kind of admiral, rear admiral. I mean, he was up there in the ranks and clearly had a lot of experience. So I'm not sure what he was going for, but clearly there's a subtle, difficult topic being explored here that's not inherently as fun and popular as something like The Longest Day. In terms of the topic, where it's like heroic and adventurous and, you know, gung-ho combat World War II movie, this is clearly the opposite of that. And while it is a comedy, it's not comedic the entire time. And maybe this is just Fonda in general, but his performance is very haunting. You know, the look in his eyes is a lot darker and a lot more dramatic than most of the scenes would even require. A little bit similar to the level of depth that Humphrey Bogart gives Captain Quig in the Kane Mutiny. So I was really mesmerized by that, especially not having been exposed to Fonda that much. But at the same time, I feel like Jack Lemmon's comedic, his physical comedy especially, but just his comedy in general is so over the top, but so clearly competent. Like he's just so funny and charismatic. And we talked about the acting in here. There's a lot of great characters here. Ward Bond's Chief Dowdy really struck me as one of my favorites just because he's so convincing as a literally an old salty chief with the mustache and kind of like, all right, man, let's get to the thing. You know, I like, loved his outfits. I felt like that. Yeah. The choice of clothing in this for him was so purposeful. And the way he wore it, like to right? have a half chewed cigar in your mouth and your sleeves kind of rolled up. It's like nobody rolls their sleeves up like an old Navy chief like that. The big bell bottom pants and then a Dungarees. Right. He's and then he's wearing more um the sergeant uniform that's tan on occasion. Uh, well that's a chief's uniform. Oh, okay. So yes, he's wearing that chief's uniform. Like it was interesting to see him adapt throughout this. The uh the Jack Lemon line Flemish up the lines aft there, Dowdy, still cracks me at like he's like, What? <laughs> New man. Like that that exchange right. between yes. the two of them. New man. It's just so good. And then he, I forgot about that scene. And then he 
picks up the ladle to taste the quote-unquote <laughs> soup, and he's like, this needs more salt, and then you see the guy dump the dishes, and I'm like, I'm pretty Ooh. sure that was dishwater. <laughs> Perfection. Again, it's all, it's all like those old comedy tropes that you don't see anymore, but man, they hit really well in this. Right, it's so vaudeville almost. Yeah, I love that. That the, Yeah, Jack Lemmon just nails all his scenes, but again, everybody delivers exactly what they're supposed to deliver here, except for maybe the people in charge of ADR. <laughs> <laughs> talked about so yeah it's kind of a difficult and less entertaining topic to begin with so kind of a tough choice and seemingly a hard sell to a studio but this ended up being the second highest grossing film of 1955 behind if you haven't looked it up can you can you give it a shot i i would not have guessed what the number one film was well, i'm guessing it's not marty i'll give you a hint it's it's disney animation sleeping beauty Lady and the Tramp? Lady and the Tramp, yes. Oh, shit, nice. That's <laughs> one of my favorite fucking Disney movies. By three or four times as much. So I'm like, wow, okay, that's, a, that's some interesting competition there. So, yeah, I guess the objective was to transfer the play from the theater to film and still give these commanding performances, having the advantage of using Henry Fonda, who was, I don't think, the first choice, which is kind of hilarious considering he'd been playing yeah. his character for two years on stage. So Marlon Brando was cast oh, yeah. as this fucking <laughs> wow. character. What a different film this would have been with Marlon Brando. Can you imagine Henry Fonda in Apocalypse Now? Oh my God. And John Ford was like, <laughs> no. Can you imagine the monologues that Marlon Brando would have given while staring off of the ship into the dark here? Oh God. <laughs> no, this would what have been- so bad? So no, here's the thing though. I'm glad we got Henry Fonda, but I could see Marlon Brando in this. 1955 Marlon Brando, sure. Because this is like Guys and Dolls era where right. Marlon Brando still occasionally does light comedies. I suppose. I feel like he would have been better as as the captain. I'm just kind of picturing Dr. Moreau on this show. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, get, right? I get it. That's a little out of, out of timeline there. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, was it successful? Yeah, clearly, if they were the number two highest grossing film. And I agree with Katie that once you correct for uh, cringeflation, if you want to call it that, it's... <laughs> there we go. That's our word. I love it. Cringeflation. <laughs> Copyright that now. I'm writing it down. The cringy topics are there, but they could have been worse because, again, they could have shown you the half-naked nurses and they could have really, like, leaned into it, whereas they keep it kind of in the background. They kind of skip through it. And... I'm certainly not going to judge anything by modern standards from that perspective. I'm going to judge it by it, its standards at the time. So, you know, it, it's a little sexist and a little racist at times and definitely horny AF. Oh, God. But it did add to the comedy. Like, again, the uh, the decorative pillow with we plow deep while others sleep. I was just dying. I was and they, they like I mean, they read it out loud like they took a moment to really highlight that. And isn't it William Powell who reads it out loud, too? Yeah, it's William Powell. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's William yeah. Powell and Henry Fonda. So William Powell reads oh. the Toujours L'Amour and then Henry Fonda reads. Oh, the American Harvesters Association tonight or never compliments of the American Harvesters Association. 
God. Tonight or never. Jesus Christ. And it really delivers it because in the kind of classic old style from this time, the only other way to do it would have been to switch to a frame of the camera just staring at the pillow and giving the audience like seven to eight seconds to read it for themselves, which would not have hit as hard. So it's great to have the characters read the actual tagline on it. Something I didn't get a chance to mention in the episode, which uh, again, thanks to Dave for the research, is that... It's interesting to draw parallels between Thomas Hagen, who, you know, the story is highly autobiographical. Yes. Thomas Hagen was on cargo duty during World War II uh, in the Caribbean and in the Pacific, and he served on two different ships, and he did often butt heads with his commanding officer. And then he wrote this story based on his experiences. So it's not a true story, but it's certainly inspired by his experiences. The interesting part is that in a different way, he did die like the main character, uh, just in a totally different circumstance. So the novel was a literary sensation upon release, selling over a million copies and making him famous, something ultimately he was not prepared for. He divorced following the publishing of the novel and was unable to complete his second book and descended into alcoholism and drug abuse. He died in 1949, so a full six years before this film actually came out, drowning in his bathtub after taking sleeping pills. His friends argued that the death was an accident, whereas the authorities ruled it a possible suicide. So kind of interesting that the author had some of the experiences of the main character and then met his demise potentially due to the success of his writing and the success of the book without even being around to see the success of the film. Right. I'm not sure what years the play was around and whether he was around for any of that. The play premiered in 1948, which I think was only a year or two after the book. Okay. So he may have maybe gone to a premiere or been around for the fame of the play, but I thought that was an interesting parallel there. So did I like it? Yeah, I liked it. This is an entertaining old film. It's shot really beautifully. I was actually, for the scenes that where the high definition comes out and the restoration is good, again, I talked about a few little glitches here and there where it doesn't come out that way. I was actually surprised to see the natural tone of the colors and how good it looked. Like, I didn't, I can't speak in technicalities about this, but it didn't feel like that fake color feel that you mm-hmm. can get from the 1950s. It no, really and felt- that's because of... Um, well, CinemaScope is the, is the aspect ratio. Yeah, and Warner Color in CinemaScope. Ah, okay. So they had this amazing big aspect ratio. It, it's the... It's- at the time, it's probably the equivalent of like Christopher Nolan or Quentin Tarantino saying, oh, we're, f- we're filming this on 70 millimeter. Yeah. 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 And each studio had their own different, ver- like Paramount had Panavision. Right. They were all proprietary. One of them was Panavision. One was VistaVision. One was CinemaScope. And it was all a, a, an effort to get people to come to the movies after the advent of television. Right. Right. Yeah. Clearly, since they even consider making this 3D, which would be hilarious since like there's not really all that much going on on screen. I don't know. Those suds coming out. Yeah, that would have been that would have been about it. And maybe the plane landing. Right. Well, then they probably would have shown the nurses if it was in 3D. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I liked it. I don't know that I need to see this again, but it does make me want to see a bunch of other John Ford films and James Cagney and Henry Fonda and everybody else. So. Clearly, just like everything else we've ever watched, I certainly don't regret watching it, and it was a nice pick. I did enjoy it. Liam, why don't you finish this off here? (sighs) 
So I do think the objective of this film is fairly clear from the, not only the, the opening crawl, if you will, there's, there's a, a little blurb in the beginning of the movie that they post up, you know, where they thank the United States Navy for their cooperation. And this film is dedicated to the servicemen who worked on the, essentially it's dedicated to people who can identify with the folks that this movie is about. And it is again, sort of reiterated with the closing letter from Mr. Roberts, where he's really talking about the virtues of being on the ship and the bravery of the men that he served with that face down this monotony and boredom that can really just drive you to despair, which I think it had driven him to despair and the other men on board. It didn't do that. And that is why he was kind of in awe of them at the end. Because if you if you're speaking in the the terms of it takes ten men to get one man fighting that you cited before, that means that there were a lot more people who could probably identify with these characters than necessarily the people who were like on the beaches at D Day or fighting in Midway and things like that. So I think this was a movie for them. I think it was a, a book for them. I think it was a play for them. And then in addition to the making money, having a studio hit, really being a big contender at the Oscars that year, all of those kind of motivations that go into making a movie, especially in this period, because I think, I think 1953 was peak Oscar viewership. It was whatever the year from here to eternity won best picture. It was 1953. And that was the year that more people that year than any other had watched the Oscars. So it was very, very much higher in public esteem and on the 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 forefront of everybody's mind then than it is now necessarily but i think that is at its at its most basic what the objective of this film was and i have to think that it was on target with as successful as it was financially critically and obviously has staying power people still people still remember this movie talk about this movie watch this movie I think it was on target. It obviously resonated. I think the cringe factor is a lot higher now. I think even at the time it would have been considered transgressive. And I think that was part of the appeal. It was kind of a, uh, it was a, a peek behind the curtain that you didn't normally get in the more propagandistic war cinema of the time. Not a lot of myth-making involved in this movie. It's funny because I never know how to expect people to react to this movie today. So I was a little nervous coming into this episode, truth be told, because it is dated and ages poorly in a lot of ways. And I remember when I was in high school, I didn't even like necessarily recommend it, but I was talking about it to some friends at like the lunch table in the cafeteria. As I do, it's what I've always done. I'm no different now than I was in like 10th grade. But one of my not super close friends, but one of my friends thought it sounded hilarious. So he went and he rented it and he watched it and he was like, this movie was not funny. Like he came back the next day, mad, (laughs) (laughs) not mad at the cringy stuff. Okay. Just mad that he didn't think it was funny. And I was, that was like one of the first times that I was like, Oh, some people just don't like old things. Yep. Was my takeaway from that moment. That's like, there's just a, a certain, style of humor that just will not necessarily translate in all ways to 
to more modern audiences. So, yeah, so I'm glad that you guys, if not liked it, like appreciated the the stuff that it still does have to offer, because I think there's a lot of good here. And I think it would probably be a stronger, more timeless film without the cringy B plot. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I like this movie. I I really do love this movie and I've watched it a lot. And Dan, don't be surprised if in five years you get the urge to watch it again, just because watching Jack Lemmon come out covered in suds is something that you really need to see in the context of the rest of the film to really get that that kick again. But he is so good. William Powell is so good. James Cagney is so good when when the palm tree goes overboard (laughs) and he calls everybody to general quarters. And he's and he's got the the he's he's on the loudspeaker just going. All right, who did it? Who did it? Yes. It still cracks me up. Like there are too many parts of this movie that have worked their way into my DNA to find them funny and hilarious and charming. That even with the cringeflation, even adjusted for cringeflation. <laughs> yeah. It, every time I watch it. The cringy parts get cringier to me. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I it's not one of those things where I'm I'm immune to them because I've watched it my whole life. There's something I don't know if it's poison ivy or, or what it is, but like the more you get it, the worse it gets. Chicken pox. Chicken pox. That's the one. You get chicken pox and then you get shingles. The later you get shingles, the, the worse it gets. Oh, it's bad. And so it's, it's one of those where it's like, oh, well, a little bit like when I was little and I didn't really notice it. But like now, the more I go and the more I watch it, every time I watch it, those parts get cringier. The slurs in it. We talked about the cannibalism, but they also throw the J slur around an awful lot. Yeah, they do. Which honestly, growing up, didn't even occur to me that that was a slur. I just thought it was an abbreviation. Like you'd call British the Brits, you know, and depending on how you use it in the tone of voice, like you may be meaning it mean or you may be meaning it not so mean. I think to to be perfectly honest, again, not to defend slurs, but I think it is a little half and half at the time. I think that it depended on how you said it. Now it's considered a slur. But I think at the time there was definitely an abbreviation factor there as well, just to be fair. So I actually... Oddly, and I I know this is probably a little bit long for the breakdown, but I was curious, so I actually did a little bit of digging, and it was used as an abbreviation from, like, the 1880s up till World War II when it's the tone started to change. Mm-hmm. Mm, that makes sense, because that would have been about the time the Russo-Japanese War would have started. But it was in the 1950s that, especially in America, the Japanese-American population really started to take issue with it. And there did start to be a a movement in that direction starting around the time of this movie. I don't think it was a cause and effect thing. I think this is just an accurate description of how people would have spoken about it, especially during World War II. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, today, way cringier than it was even intended to be at its release. Like, I think this movie was not shying away from transgression, but I don't think they viewed that as one of the transgressive natures of it. Yeah, I could agree with that. So yes, I love this movie in spite of the cringiness. And if you have a tolerance for cringiness, I think you should watch it because there's still an awful lot of good to be had from it. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So what are we doing next? Next up, drum roll. I'm excited for this one. 
because if you are a patron of ours, you just listened to John McTiernan's, in my opinion, masterpiece from 1987, Predator. (laughs) If you're not a patron, it's only four bucks a month and you can go to dangerclose.com forward slash support and get in on that. Get in the game, kids. But we are going to cover another John McTiernan film from 1990 called The Hunt for Red October, based on a Tom Clancy book, which another rare instance where I actually have read this book. It was just like middle school or something like I read it forever ago. This one is a whopper with Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, Scott Glenn in an actual speaking role this time, as opposed to Apocalypse Now, (laughs) (laughs) Sam Neill, and James Earl Jones just... Oh, and Tim Curry. I'm sorry. I was going to say Tim Curry's in that, I don't want to forget uh, Tim Curry as Dr. Petrov. So, if you're not familiar with this very successful and very famous film, it's set in November 1984, where a Soviet nuclear sub-captain defects to the U.S., and the U.S. is trying to find him and get to him and figure out what's going on while the Russians are trying to hunt him down. So it's a very exciting action film, very beloved and very early on in Alec Baldwin's career and one of Sean Connery's best performances, I think. Mm -hmm. So join us in two weeks, two Fridays from now for that one. In the meantime, if you want to participate in our polls, which we will have already put out a new one by now, talk about next films we can get into and just generally discuss uh, the episodes as well as see the great posts that Jeff and Peter and Dave and Kyle make on the weapons and vehicles and airplanes covered in the episodes. You can go to Facebook and go to Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group and join the conversation. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye. Bye.